All right. Well, last, last time, we were able to uh, just do an introduction to Exodus. We finished Genesis and uh, provided a little bit of orientation to our next book, which is Exodus. And we went through, you know, who, who was the author and uh, the basic idea behind this book. And we noticed a number of different themes that are running through the book. And most especially, we looked at some of the parallels between Moses as deliverer and Jesus as deliverer. And we're going to see all kinds of connections as we make our way through this book. Um, and Moses really becomes typologically a, a type of Jesus. And, uh, and so there are many things about their lives that we talked about last time that are, are parallel. Tonight, uh, as we, we're going to look at chapter 1 and probably look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And this is really setting the scene now. We're going to get a, a little bit of the background of how Israel, the children of Israel have been doing now that they are in the land of Egypt. We saw at the end of Genesis that the clan that, uh, that is pretty much Jacob's extended family has now relocated to Egypt in order to escape the ravages of the famine that was uh, throughout the land of Canaan. And of course, God had, had predicted this. God had given Abraham back, back in Genesis 15, I believe, where he let, the, let Abraham know that there would come a time when the children of Israel would be going to a foreign land and they would be captive there before being delivered back to the land. And so uh, we saw that at the end of, of Genesis. Tonight, we're going to see the back the backstory, if you will, of what's happened over many years that now the children of Israel are in Egypt and how they move from being really most favored visitor status to now being in bondage. And we're going to see the beginning of God raising up a deliverer for his people who is none other than Moses. So we pick it up in verse one of chapter one of Exodus. And there we read, now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Now, what we see in those, in those early verses there is a, a roster of the sons of Jacob. And they're kind of given in an order. The Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. These are all the, the sons that came from Leah. And she was the first of Jacob's two wives to bear children. And then Benjamin is tucked in there. Next, he is the youngest son of the 12 and also the youngest son from the two sons that were born to Jacob through his wife, Rachel, the preferred wife. And, and Joseph is conspicuous by his absence, but we, we are told in verse five that he's not listed there because he was already in Egypt. So what the, the author Moses is doing here is he's giving account of the, of the brothers who came from the land of Canaan to settle in, uh, in Egypt. And then we see there, um, we see Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher, and those are the sons of Bil Bilhah, and then, um, and uh, I'm sorry, and then Gad, Gad and Asher, who, uh, who were uh, from Zil Zilf Zilpah. 
And so all these were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph in, was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. So the sons that immediately came with Jacob, they have all now passed. That generation is gone. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so what we're being told here is that that original group that came over, which was really just a pretty good-sized clan, now is becoming a nation. And this is something that, that Jacob was told when he was still alive. We saw it in Genesis 47, 27, where we read, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Now, it's interesting the way the Lord worked because God, from the very beginning, when, he's, when he established his people in the land of Canaan, he repeatedly warned them about intermingling with the peoples that were found in the land of Canaan. And, and you know, like so many things, a place that God would consider special is a place where the enemy is going to be working double time. And it seems like the indigenous people of the land of Canaan were particularly wicked. And because of that wickedness, this is why ultimately when the children of Israel go back into the land under the leadership of Moses and then, and then uh, Joshua, their instruction is to utterly destroy the peoples they find there and do not intermarry with them, do not fraternize with them because of the corrupting influence that those people would have. And so at this early stage in the history of Israel, when the nation is literally being born, God takes them out of Canaan. He brings them to Egypt, knowing that the Egyptians have a bias against people who, who are shepherds and who keep animals. And they are given a place, this land of Goshen, which is on the Nile River Delta, very fertile land, great place to raise flocks and the like. And, and they were, in a sense, they were in this little incubator. In fact, some uh, Bible commentators consider their time in Egypt and their stay in Egypt to be both a womb, a place where they could grow and develop, and a furnace. And, and, and it, it's likened to a furnace because, as we're going to see in this chapter, it's a place of refinement. It's refinement that comes at the hand of persecution. Uh, I think, you know, on the one hand, some of us in thinking about where the state of the church in America today, and we're kind of looking a little bit towards the horizon and seeing persecution coming our way, and, and we dread that, frankly. We, we're not, we don't welcome that. But at the same time, there is a silver lining in the heat being turned up in that I think the Church of America could use a little bit of refining. We could use a little bit of, of um, being challenged to stand for our faith in real life issues, which for a long time in our country, we've really not been challenged that way. Um, we, we've pretty much lived in a country that has a lot of guaranteed individual rights. Many of those rights we've seen in the last several years have been under attack, particularly rights of religious assembly and religious speech. Um, and so um, this, this sojourn in, in Egypt is a place of development, but also a place of refinement. And we see here in verse 7 that 
They increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. The land was filled with them. It's assumed or it's, it's estimated that by the time they are ready to leave the country of Egypt to go back towards the land of Canaan, the number of men in the nation of Israel numbered about 600,000, which would put the, the total population in an estimate of, of maybe as many as 2 million. And, uh, and so this is the Lord's hand doing exactly what he had told Abraham many years ago, told Jacob before Jacob's death, and now it is absolutely happening here. Verse 8, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now what we, we, we take away from that is that enough time has passed uh, and the Pharaoh that was on the throne at the time that Joseph was his right-hand man, that regime had passed. A, a new uh, king is in place. He does not have the, the relate. he never had the relationship with Joseph that would give him that level of respect that all of Egypt had for him while he was still alive. Um, this, this king, and there's a number of different theories as to exactly which king it was, Amenhotep or uh, Tutmosis are two, uh, two options that scholars look to. And these, these individuals uh, were ruling Egypt in the 1500s BC. So it was around that time uh, and, and so this pharaoh is looking with a jauntist eye at this growing nation of people within their nation. And he said to his people, look, the people of, of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So you can see now that the, the expanse of, of the growth of Israel as a nation is starting to become worrisome to the king of Egypt. He's starting to see a growing power within his power. And, you know, it's, it's a group of people that are of a, a distinct ethnicity. They, they had somewhat of a distinct culture because they've been more or less isolated um, over the time that they've been living in Egypt. And so he, he looks at them as, as a threat. And he says there, um, come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Now, what's being expressed here is something that I believe, if you look back carefully through the history of the Jewish people, you'll see this same jauntist eye against God's people from their very beginning. They're always perceived as a threat. They're perceived as a threat because they're industrious, they have a long history of performing well in the endeavors of human beings because they've had God's favor. And so wherever in the world they've been parked, whether it's in in scattering them throughout the world as happens on a number of occasions, or even when they're back in their land as they are today, the powers that be around them are always looking with a jaundiced eye like these people could be a threat. And here the king is seeing the sheer number of them in the midst of his country of Egypt as a threat. And he's, he's also looking at the possibility that the Jewish people in the event of an invasion by a foreign enemy of Egypt, that the Jewish people knowing, well, we're not Egyptians and maybe it would be better for us to cast our lot with this invading army. 
And so now all of a sudden you've got 200, you've got 2 million people within your country siding with your enemy. Now there's no indication in anything that we read in scripture that, um, that they had that mindset, that they wanted to do anything to undermine Egyptian rule. Um, but yet here we are uh, with, with the king of Egypt thinking that these people are a threat and the, the statement there in verse 10 is we need to deal shrewdly with them. And I believe that's a reference to the king and the powers that be deciding we need to enslave these people. We need to put them to work for us. We need to, to remove their ability to wield any power on their own. And this began, I'm sure, the bondage that they ultimately find themselves in before their deliverance. And um, this, is, this is in line with what the Lord had told Abraham back in Genesis 15. Because in Genesis 15, 13, we read there that God said to Abraham, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. See, God was already laying the story out to Abraham to say the day is coming when your descendants, and remember we tracked through Isaac and then Jacob then his 12 sons, then the exodus, well, not the exodus, but the entry into Egypt, and then the passage of time as this clan grows into many, many people, and then the point at which the country in which they're parked starts to view them as a threat, starts to enslave them, and, and it's interesting that the Lord is allowing what is happening by virtue of the, the individual agendas of the, all the people involved, the, the Israelis, they want to be prosperous. They want to have large families. They want to grow and, and establish themselves. The king of Egypt, he views that as a threat. He's taking action to, to mitigate that threat in his mind. And all of this is creating a situation where ultimately the people of God will become decidedly uncomfortable with where they are. And so God working in the midst of the affairs of people will have the Israelites reach a place where they believe they need deliverance and that they will then move back to where God wants them to be. And this is very often the way the Lord works. The Lord doesn't just stick a hand down from a, a cloud and pick people up and move them around. The Lord looks upon the affairs of human beings. He knows the heart of every human being. He knows the predilections of every human being. And the genius of God, the divine providence of God, is that he can work in the midst of that to bring about his purpose. This is the way it's worked in many of our lives. We have done things in our lives that ultimately positioned us in a way where all of a sudden a seam opens up and we see the Lord clearly. I mean, I could give you my story, but it wouldn't be any more remarkable than your stories. That how the Lord, working in the very circumstances of your life, opens a way for you to see the need for deliverance, and then you receive it. And so this is what's happening with these people. And um, we see there in verse 12, or verse uh, 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. So now it's, they're under the lash, so to speak. They are under the thumb of Pharaoh and his minions, and they are being put upon with burdens 
to do things for Pharaoh, and we see there in verse 11, they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. These are cities where apparently uh, Pharaoh stores goods or whatever. Maybe this is a, a holdover from what they learned through the famine when Joseph set up storehouses throughout the country to protect the country from the famine. And so now they're putting the children of Israel to work building these, these supply cities. But notice in verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, that is to say, the more the Egyptians afflicted God's people, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were the dread of the children of Israel. Look, God's first chapter of working in the midst of humanity to create a way out that is salvation, and I might just step aside and say, the entire story of the Bible is the story of a way out. I mean, through the first three chapters, we see the problem. Created to have fellowship with God, created to have a marvelous existence with God, but created in the image of God and therefore with a free will, which was exercised poorly to choose not God. And everything from there until Revelation is the story of God making a way out. And the first chapter, the first section of God's plan to make a way out for humanity is worked through the children of Israel. And this is why, I mean, we said this last night in the men's Bible study, the greatest piece of empirical evidence for the existence of God and the plan of God is the nation Israel. And you can look from this point in their history and reel it all the way forward to today. And what you'll find is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Now, as God works through the nation Israel, Throughout history, yes, there are, there are periods of time in their history of severe chastisement, all of which, by the way, God previewed for them before any of it happened in the book of Deuteronomy. But the ultimate purpose that God has for the Jewish people, much of which has been accomplished, the, codifica- the, the, the writing and codification of Scripture, the carrying of Scripture forward, uh, the, the, the bringing of Messiah onto the earth, all of these things God had as part of his plan for the salvation for the way out of humanity using his called out people he uses them as an ensign of his glory and his greatness even to this day even that the nation israel is populated probably by a majority of people who don't even believe in him and yet this is part of god's plan and starting right even here in spite of the afflictions that that the egyptians were bringing upon the people of israel they, they, they prosper, they grow, they multiply, they become the dread of, uh, of the people of Egypt. So the Egyptians, verse 13, made the children of Israel serve with rigor. So now the heat is being turned up, the oppression is becoming more overt, and we see in verse 14 that they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, in all manner of service in the field, All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. 
Then we read, because they were not able to break the backs, the will of the Israelites through this hard labor, we read in verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now here we see, um, to their everlasting shame, a plan of infanticide. We are going to castrate the, the growth of this nation by putting to death all of the male children that are born to Hebrew women. And this just points up yet again how human beings who live apart from the true and the living God deny one of the most, the most poignant evidences of God's sovereignty. God authors life. People live at God's good pleasure. People are born into the world because of God's design and purpose for their life. And whenever human beings have detached themselves from the recognition of the true and living God, the Romans 1 description that we see there, it's not long after that that they will take command of who lives and who dies, including the most innocent among us, which is children. Children in the womb or immediately out of the womb. And this kind of thing, this kind of strategy has happened since the beginning of time, frankly. And um, when we see the, if you go back to the roots of the abortion movement in our country, you go back to the roots of Planned Parenthood. This was a eugenics movement. This was a movement that was designed to eliminate different race, racial groups, different socioeconomic levels of people. It was very deliberate. It was a decision made by the so-called elites that we are not going to allow people of a certain profile to live. And this, this began with a very deliberate motivation to kill certain people on purpose. And then like so many evil things, it was wrapped up with, with, with a, a veil of virtue. This is women's health. This is women's rights. Women have a right to their body. Women, women have a right to health care. Health care? Really? When does murder rise to the level of health care? But this is the kind of evil that surrounds any attempt by human beings to step in God's shoes and decide who will live and who will die, who will be born, who will not be born. And so here, the king of Egypt is telling the midwives who are serving the, the, uh, the Hebrew women who are giving birth that you will put to death any male child that is born. But verse 17, the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but save the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and save the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. What we have here is an example of courageous women 
who have a sense of the true and the living God, have a, have a sense of the gross sin involved in putting to death the innocents. This was, by the way, same strategy that Herod tried to use to eliminate the possibility of Messiah being born. God is always able to foil these attempts of human beings to, to stop his plan from going forward. And here, these, these midwives, they're in the same mode as Peter and John, Peter and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they were commanded by the council, you'll not preach in the name of Jesus in our streets. And, and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And it's interesting that we get a clear indication here that these women did that, and we see in verse 20, God, therefore, or another way to say it is, because of their faithfulness, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. I mean, when we see that God dealt well with them, we could, we could start with the fact that Pharaoh didn't put them to death, because he very well could have said, look, I gave you an order, a direct order, it's not happening, kill them, and it would have happened. I mean, that's the way um, totalitarian government works. And so it was because the midwife feared God and he provide, he, that he provided households for them. So the midwives were prospered because they were faithful to obey uh, the plan of God. So Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So now he's enlisting his people, the Egyptians, to say, look, if you see a Hebrew woman giving birth to a, a male child, you're, you're to intervene and see that that child is killed. And so this becomes um, a very troubling reaction to uh, what, what, what is happening with Israel growing in the very midst of the Egyptians. And so this is the backdrop. This is, this is the, the scene as it is set before the deliverer, Moses, comes on the scene. A growing nation within a nation, uh, a threat, perceived as a threat by the Egyptian king, actions being taken to subdue Israel, both by virtue of slave labor and by virtue of infanticide. And notwithstanding that, Israel continues to grow and to prosper. And so now God prepares a deliverer. Verse 1, chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Now let me just stop here and say, we don't get the names of Moses' parents here. You do see that in chapter 6 when we get there. But the interesting backstory in, in the case of Moses is that his father is a man by the name of Amran, who is a Levite, identified here. And you'll see this in chapter 6, uh, verse 20, uh, when we get over there. And we see there in verse 20 of chapter 6, Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister. So Amram actually marries his aunt, and the two of them as a couple are the ones who give birth to Moses, also Miriam and Aaron. And as, as different as that sounds, keep in mind the law had not yet been given. Keep in mind that at the very beginning of time, people always ask this question, 
you know, who are the people that Cain was afraid of after he murdered his brother? Where do these people come from? Uh, all this and that. We have to understand that the, the, the original human beings had extraordinarily long lifespans. If you look at the, the life of Adam, Adam, has, Adam lived for about 13% of the entirety of human history. And, and we know that he had sons and daughters. And, and, and as, as humanity, the human race starts to grow, obviously it had to start with close-in relatives marrying within themselves and producing offspring, etc. And in God's grand design, and, and considering that DNA, the closer you got to Adam, the better, the, the more pure DNA of human beings was, our DNA as it exists today has suffered millennia of corruption due to the sin, sin the effects of sin on the whole world. And so, um, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised that Moses' father and mother were actually uh, nephew and aunt. Um, very strange for our day, but not quite so strange for that day. So the woman conceived, verse 2, and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So now, of course, she has to hide him because even that he was not killed by a midwife at his birth... Now all of Egypt is on the lookout for male children that are born to Hebrews. So she has to keep this child under wraps. But as the child is growing, and, and you know, as kids do, they start to get vocal, um, and they start to get vocal cords, and they start to get lung power, and before you know it, a baby screaming at three months is, some, is something to behold. You know, Everybody knows about it. And so um, she hit him three months, but when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, this is interesting because this ark, as it's described, has some qualities to it that the ark of Noah also had. Uh, the ark of Noah was also pitched on the inside and out, and... It was a way of protecting who was inside. And it's very much kind of a picture of God's salvation, of God's preservation of his people. And Moses is a little, little kind of tiny pointer towards that care that God has to protect him. The other thing that's interesting here about the way Moses is described and, and, you know, you might say, well, it's no big deal. What mother wouldn't think this? But we see there in verse 2, she saw that he was a beautiful child and hid him three months. Now, of course, that's his mother. I've never seen a mother say, gosh, I should send this one back. This is terrible, ugly child. No. But if you look at the references to Moses in other places of Scripture, there's a uniformity to his description being one of exception he's an exceptional child uh i'll just give you a couple of examples uh in stephen's great address we talked about this i think last night in men's bible study how stephen gave a a sterling history lesson to the sanhedrin before he was killed and all of that history lesson was to lead to the conclusion that notwithstanding the the myriad of 
excellence in terms of the messaging that God sent to his people through the prophets and through different men and women. Stephen's conclusion is you always, you, Jewish leadership, you always grieve the Holy Spirit. You always deny the message of the Holy Spirit. And one of the individuals that he, he speaks of is uh, Moses. And in the 17th verse of Acts chapter 7, in his history, in his narrative that Stephen is, is speaking to, he says, but when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. He's literally giving commentary on the very passage we're studying right now. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. See, right at the the get-go, there is the acknowledgement that this child was pleasing to God. He was a vessel intended by God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed. So, so here is Stephen, and he's acknowledging that this man, Moses, this deliverer that God is raising up, exceptional. From birth, he is considered by those who behold him to be exceptional. Then last night, the men and I were studying in Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter of the Bible known as the Hall of Faith. And it's a, it's a catalog of different individuals from the history of Israel who demonstrated great faith, overcame the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, denied the flesh so that they could, they could slot in under the will and the way of God to accomplish great things for God's kingdom. And Moses is among those. And we read, uh, as we did last night in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And that word beautiful, it's, it's something more than just appearance. The child was oozing specialness. They could tell as they beheld this child that this one was different than others. And they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than riches, uh, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, one of the questions that came up last night when we saw that description of how Moses, as he grew, he decided against living in the wealth and the, and the uh, opulence of being basically the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh. And instead, he chose the reproach of Christ, which was tantamount to the reproach of living among these people who have now been relegated to the status of slave. And he would rather be with those people and identify with those people than to identify with Pharaoh's household. And so the question came up, how would Moses have ever had a sense of his people? And we had a lot of theories, a lot of speculation, and there was reason to believe every one of those. But I want you to watch what happens here 
back in our text, uh, here he is. He's been put into this little ark that's been pitched on the inside and, and also that it's waterproof so that he, he's safe as he's on the river. And his sister, or he's put into the reeds of the riverbank. You know, like a lot of bodies of water, as you get to the, the edge of the water, the riverbank, there's, there's aquatic weeds that are growing there. And, uh, and he's kind of nestled in the midst of that. And the daughter um, and his sister, verse 4, stood afar off to know what would be done to him. So this, this sounds very deliberate by Moses' mother. We're going to put him in this little spot by the river. Maybe it was a known place where the daughter of Pharaoh would come and bathe. And so there is little Miriam hanging out, keeping a watch of her baby brother. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Now stopping right there for a moment, her father has identified clearly the Hebrews are a threat to our nation. The Hebrews are multiplying like rabbits in our midst. They might align themselves with one of our enemies, and then we would have conflict coming from outside the nation and within the nation simultaneously. We must, every one of us Egyptians, every one of us patriotic Egyptians, must do our level best to annihilate any Jewish male child that we find. All of a sudden, a little ark sails up. Pharaoh's daughter opens it, sees this special, beautiful child crying, immediately concludes that this must be one of the Hebrews' children. And she holds it underwater until it drowns. No, she didn't. She didn't do that. This is the hand of the Lord. Then this... His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, hey, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Say what? She's, she's going against what the father has, her father has, has sent as an edict to all of the Egyptians. She is, she is going to do affirmative things to keep this child alive. And God's providential hand is making this all possible, but with a great big cherry on top. Because Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. So, <laughs> so here is Jochebed, the mother of Moses, being hired by Pharaoh's daughter to wet nurse her own son. And... Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So now her son is going to survive in Pharaoh's household, but his own mother, Jochebed, is going to be his wet nurse, is going to take her son back under the blessing of Pharaoh's daughter and she's going to have that child with her until it's weaned. And there, you know, I, I went and looked around on the internet to see what well, what would be the proper, you know, the the age of weaning of a child of that time. And there's a range, just like there's a range now. I mean, some people they wet nurse their child for like six months, and before you know it, they're eating steak. 
Uh, other parents, they have their child uh, nursing for considerably longer. And if you think about those days where there wasn't all the cute little baby foods and all the things that mommies have at their disposal to raise their children, I suspect that wet nursing went on a little longer than maybe we uh, would do in, in our current time. And, uh, and so back to the question that was asked last night in the men's Bible study, this child is growing up in his father's home under his father's roof, his biological father's roof, with his own mother nurturing him. And that could very well at least be the rudiments of what he came to know about his people. So by the time he's going to Pharaoh's household, he knows from where he came. And he loves those people who nurtured him in his early years. This is, this is, this is what I mean when I say that the very existence of Israel is just the best empirical proof of God, the God of the Bible, God has raised up this nation as his ensign. And people would say, how could that be? You know, the Israelis this, the Israelis that, you know, they're an apartheid state, all these different things. Look, there's never been a people on the earth who weren't as human as you and me, who didn't have the capacity to do evil like every other people on the earth. God did not choose the Israelites. He did not call Abraham because Abraham was special. He did, not he did not allow Isaac to survive as the son of promise, even to come in to be as the son of promise because he would be this exceptional human being. And goodness gracious, don't get me started on Jacob because we've seen his life track out and we know the, the failings that occurred in his life. And then you look at the patriarchs and there's another whole roster of, of um, you know, it's a parade of horribles in terms of things that happen in their lives. But... In the things that counted, the patriarchs were faithful because they held the promises that God gave them. They had faith, not in an outcome. And this was something we were talking about last night in the men's Bible study. You know, some of the heretical strains of the greater church, the, the wealth, health, prosperity, or word faith movement as it's known. This is, this is a theology built on having a faith in an outcome. If I believe it enough that I'm gonna get it, I'm going to get it. And this is a gross heresy. It is a, it is a total perversion of what faith is all about. That's why Romans or uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is so impactful because you're seeing people who when you go and you really understand their backstory and you understand who they were as people, you say, well, goodness, they're just like you and me. And they are. But what distinguished them and their faith as as described in, in Hebrews 11, was the fact that they, they did things where they believed on something that would not happen till future. They believed and held on to things that were not seen, not because they believed in an outcome, but because they believed in the one who said it. They believed their object of their faith was God. And God is here showing his people that he will have his deliverer and there's nothing anyone can do to stop him. And there, th this is why I say, when you look at the, the history of Israel, when you look at the modern history of Israel, Israel 
declares himself to be a nation, May 14, 1948. Within 12 hours of that, they're in an existential battle with all of the nations around them. And, and to weigh the, the, the personnel numbers and the material numbers and, and qualities, no way this is going to end well for the Israelites. And here we are now, 70-some years later, stronger than ever. They're the ninth most powerful army in the world, and yet their population is like 9 million people in an area the size of like New Jersey. And they, and, 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 and they instill fear in the nations that surround them that are numbered in the hundreds of millions of people. Some of the wealthiest nations on earth and they don't dare mess with Israel. So this is where it all begins, people. This, this is where the miracle really gains momentum. And it's, it is, it's exciting to see. That's why I'm so psyched to go uh, in two weeks time with people of the church and also some people that are not from our church. This is the largest group of people coming with us that don't actually attend church here that I think we've had in the, in the years that we've been doing this. It's been now 10 years that we've been going to Israel. And, uh, and I hope that uh, the day will come if you have not gone yet, that before the Lord takes you there um, forever, that you get a chance to see it now um, because everywhere you look, you see a miracle. And, uh, and it starts right here in, in the book of Exodus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Lord, your perfect plan. We see that perfect plan in the pages of scripture and we just stand back in awe. How you just orchestrated the, the conditions and, and the circumstances of Moses' life, that he could even be born, and then that he could, he could uh, be nursed by his own mother, and then that he could land in a place where he could grow and prosper and be educated uh, superbly, and yet, Lord, you continue to keep the spark alive in his heart that he is a special man raised up to lead a special people, people of God. And Lord, our deliverer, Jesus Christ, is similarly, but oh so much more, a deliverer of us and really of all of humanity. And we thank you for sending him to us. And we thank you for his sacrifice that has made it possible for us to have the hope of heaven and not just a hope so, but the reality of heaven in our future, Lord. And so we thank you, God, for your perfect plan, for your plan for humanity, for a way out of the bondage of sin that we got ourselves into. What a merciful and gracious God you are to make that possible in our lives. We give you all praise and honor and thanks. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.